Brother bought a coconut, he brought a forty dime, he said that lime in the coconut, and drink em all the lime, he put the lime in the coconut, and drink em both up, he put the lime in the coconut, all the doctor woke him up, said doctor, is there nothing I can take, I said doctor, to relieve this bellyache, now let me get this straight. Put the lime in the coconut and drink them both together. Put the lime in the coconut and call the doctor. Woke him up and said, Doctor. Everybody's talking at me. I can't hear a word to say. Only the echoes of my mind. People stop and stare. The late, great Harry Nilsson, who has sang a lot of songs you're not even aware of, I'll bet. Uh, they've been right under your nose the whole time, you know. Put the lime in the coconut and drink them both. Put the lime in the coconut. Called the doctor, woke him up, said, Doctor, ain't there nothing I can take? I said, Doctor. Just one wild turn after another, one zig after one zag after... You don't know which direction this guy was going. It was fascinating. And I had the, I had the great fortune of uh, actually watching a doc on this cat. And I'd always... Kn- well, I hadn't always known. Uh, I think I talked or read about something... Read him. Something to do with him in... One of the first... <laughs> podcast of the last year and having to do with just uh i don't even remember what i was talking about it was like it was like uh i i referred to one of the songs he that they used of his in goodfellas uh, you can climb a mountain you can swim the sea you can jump into the fire but you can never be free. Where Ray Liotta's like driving crazy through the streets thinking helicopters are following him because he's paranoid on coke and trying to sell coke and guns and all that shit. And uh, they had a perfect song. That was the perfect song for the perfect artist for the perfect movie for the perfect situation. And lo and behold, you know, I forgot too. So I'm watching the doc and uh, he... I forgot, and well, I vaguely recall or remember that he d- did the work on Popeye, or that's what I had read earlier in the year when I was mentioning him about other, uh, whatever I was talking about in the last podcast earlier last year. And uh, so, and then I started thinking about Popeye, and I'm thinking like, well, I guess it wasn't really, according to the movie, a colossal failure. Um, although it didn't meet expectations, but I forgot how many huge names were attached to that. So, of course, Paramount, was it Paramount? Or it was Robert Evans who uh, basically saved Paramount, but he was the producer, the main producer, Robert Evans. And then it was directed by Robert Altman, who was, you know, was it like nine years earlier, had won the Best Picture at Cannes Film Festival for MASH, which is brilliant. Um, they got Robin Williams, they got Harry Nilsson doing the music, and it, but it was such a bizarre setting, like this island in Malta, and but how crazy, you know, just to think of the people that that came together on that island, the, the personalities trapped on an island like that. So because they. Deliberately built stages or whole sets uh, out of nothing, and th- and then left them there. Like there's still the stuff's still there. If you go to Malta, there's a little. It's an amusement. I think it's an amusement park now called Popeye Land or something. And but it was in this, this elaborate town made for the whole movie, which it really it looks otherworldly. It it it's such a fascinating overall movie because it gives you this kind of w- weird timeless. Uh, feel when you see him in the beginning, you know, rowing up to. Uh, speaking of rowing, uh, I talked about a couple podcasts ago. This guy's rows in from 
middle of nowhere under this island and the sets not only were they not only were they set but they were uh, where the cast and crew slept and ate and uh, worked and it was so you were literally just uh, sequestered on this island for however many weeks you know or months I think it because it went over it went past its uh, a due date or you know it's past its it went over a, over budget and over time so maybe they've been out there for months and they were hitting there was storms and stuff coming and so now you're locked up on this island with Robert Altman Robert Evans both notorious partiers Robin Williams big time party but this is really this is his first I believe this is his first movie so 1980 I mean this is when I like right when he was getting into I mean he I don't think Mork and Mindy had even come out yet it was just about to come out it came out maybe came out simultaneously because he'd just done the spot on Happy Days just the one guest spot is Mork Mork for Mork Nanner Nanner and then who else is on there so oh and then Harry Nielsen my god I mean the the partier of all partiers. So, but supposedly, I guess, I don't know. And I don't remember the music. I don't remember the music. It didn't, um, obviously, it didn't stand out enough for me. It was real subtle. So, watching portions of it last night on the dock, I could recall mm, vaguely some of the pieces but it wasn't anything that stood out right and uh but anyway fascinating doc but um it makes sense though now that i look at like the first time i saw reservoir dogs um you know i kind of get the name from my podcast kind of from the in the same pool of thought that probably went into the naming of a movie like Reservoir Dogs because my initial impression of Reservoir Dogs was that it was a pit of dogs that were just kind of trapped in a reservoir and just left to fend for themselves and uh, just try and get out and, and, and you know while just being trapped with these other dogs like who's the, who's the, who's the, mo- who's the most survivable who's the biggest survivalist you know who's going to come out in one piece right Car dogs is really, of course, it's a it's a euphemism for car salesman, you know. But it's also up there with like Straw Dogs, the Sam Peckinpah movie. But it's like dogs in a car, you know. Like, what do dogs in a car do? Well, they they just look at and get to look at the world and observe the world and just they're, they're And what's funny about dogs and cars is they don't have an equilibrium. They don't understand that. The guy driving's about to break, so they just go flying. And that's what life is, you know? But anyway, Reservoir Dogs, when I first saw it, was 94. So it was like three years after it came out. And there's this big buzz because it was banned in the UK for being too violent. But we rented it. I'm like, oh, okay. So what we got? What do we got? And uh, put it in. Did the whole thing. as a heist movie that you never see a heist. Most of it's shot in a warehouse in L.A. And it takes place with these guys wearing black and white suits that look like a bunch of diamond salesmen. Or diamond thieves. Whichever you prefer. And then in the end, right, spoiler alert, when Harvey Keitel and... Um, oh, Nice guy Eddie and uh, the boss, drawn a blank. Um, they're having a Mexican standoff there. They're all pointing guns at each other and they all fire, and that's the end. And the screen goes black, and all of a sudden you're booty doom, beetle loopin', booty doom, beetle loopin', brother bought a coconut, drink a mold, wine, and you put the lime in the coconut, drink a mold, and I put the lime in the coconut. All of a sudden, yeah, Harry Nilsson is popping. I'm like, and I'm like, what the fuck did I just watch? Like, I'm waiting, to, you know, 
there's certainly peaks and valleys of the movie. You know, this isn't a review about Reservoir Dogs. It's just about how fitting the end of that movie was. And then Harry Nielsen pops up because Harry Nielsen is basically like the, the epitome of the Sunset Strip. This is a guy that was like a product of L.A., you know, uh, moved from, I guess, well, according to the documentary, he was set out on his own. He's like 15 years old. He just hopped. He was went, he, he hitchhiked from uh, the East Coast and uh, came out to L.A., got a job at a bank and just started writing songs. Um and just became like he was just this super kind of genius and got his hooks into some publishing deals but he never toured he just built up this huge following and even the uh the Beatles were huge fans he hung out I mean they were they became he became best friends with John Lennon and Ringo Starr I mean talk I mean partying so matter of fact uh so his last wife was an Irish, uh, a young Irish woman that he met in Dublin when he was drunk, just, you know, just wandering the streets of Dublin uh, late at night, like 10 o'clock, and uh, wandered into an ice cream shop where she worked. It turns out, I mean, this was like the love of his life. He had three kids with her. And, uh, but she was just some girl that, Irish girl that worked in Dublin in an ice cream shop and, and she turned out to be a great obviously a great match and a great mother and great relationship and uh, but what's funny is like somebody that just kind of a, had been working in a ice cream shop and all of a sudden you're getting married to Harry Nilsson and Ringo Starr's your best man so yeah you gotta step back sometimes it's kind of fascinating but but I thought, how perfect at the end of Reservoir Dogs. When I finally, when it finally, when I finally came around, and kind of got it, and I figured out what that, what was going on in that damn movie. And this is even after I saw Pulp Fiction, and I kind of started making sense of things. Like, oh, I get it. It's like the whole French New Wave thing, the whole Francois Truffaut, the whole Jean Luc Godard, you know, Breathless, A Bout du Souffle, you know, all that stuff. The New Wave, the French New Wave, the cool hip, the. Everything's black and white, and everyone's wearing shades, and, you know. And then he steals a little bit from Martin Scorsese in the opening sequence with the slow motion sequences and things like that. And he riffs on popular culture and talks about Madonna songs. And then in the end, it's Harry Nilsson. So it's like the epitome of, like, an L.A. thing. It's kind of like this kind of cultural, non-cultural thing, you know. There's, like, like L.A. is this bastion of culture but it's like this weird dark kind of fake plasticky culture matter of fact I, there's a book i want to read called day of the locust which is all about that it's just kind of like how sunny and beautiful and pretty and everyone's so seemingly in you know l living the life of a la you know a day in the life in la happiness but underneath there's like this weird darkness you know which is i guess kind of like what harry nielsen was but so was reservoir dogs so was uh well so was la so they made a movie out of it two day of the locust but i uh, there is something about that 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 thing that presence that la like if you take another example uh well like another robert evans movie like chinatown that was uh, basically uh, that in itself. The cool thing about these movies is the stories within the movie, not the movie itself. I mean, the movie is great. Chinatown is one of the greatest movies ever. I mean, it's got to be in the top, I would say, top 50 of all time easily. And uh, but, the, but the real story behind it with, with Robert Town writing it and battling with uh, Roman Polanski, the director, over kind of the vision of the movie where... Polanski wanted to show the darkness of it, the underbelly of the town, you know, and Robert Town was making it more of a story about the early days of L.A. and fighting for water rights and all the political back and forth. And so, but both of them kind of converged and it made it this masterpiece, you know, and uh, produced by Robert Evans. So the guy's got an eye for talent. I just don't know why Popeye. Popeye is like one of those deals where it's like you don't quite, you, you want to watch it. And so you put it on, and you're like, 
here we go. This could be, this could be great. Robert Evans, Robert Altman, Robin Williams, Harry Nielsen, and then you about halfway through, you're like, man, this isn't, uh, this isn't really going anywhere. <laughs> like, what's going on? So, but the story behind it, I, what's interesting is uh, what came out. See, there was a bidding war for the movie Annie, which. Uh, was a big hit, I guess, that year. I, I remember seeing that came when it came out, which was this musical. So Paramount wanted to uh, uh, have some kind of rival uh, musical cart, you know, movie based on a cartoon. Like this is kind of the inception of, you know, the first of of, of feature films that are based on cartoons. Annie was one of the first ones, and then Popeye followed suit because. Uh, Paramount or Robert Evans owned the 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 rights to the story, and uh, but it wasn't intended to originally be a musical. They just made it a musical because they wanted to go toe to toe with Annie, because that was a musical. So it was the battle of musicals. So it just didn't. It just didn't. You don't. You, there's just something. There's something so weird. It's just a weird. There's a weird aura, weird vibe. But it was a weird production. And so it is, but it is a lot about, to me anyway, even though they're, I can't say Popeye's a great movie by any means, but movies like Chinatown, I mean, there's, there's those movies that, that the inside guts, the story of the movie, the, the, you know, what went on during the filming, uh, sometimes it's just as exciting, if not more exciting than the, the movie itself, sometimes. But uh, but that goes that goes with uh, along with um, people as well. Um, and case in point, I have to talk specifically about William T. Volman, who lives here in Sacramento, and uh, is guaranteed to be. He's probably going to win the Nobel Prize in literature at some point. Um, might be a few years, but it's it's just based on the just the sheer volume of his work and just the themes that he's dealt with, uh, you know, the, the, the Seven Dreams series, which is about uh, primarily the uh, immigrants of other land masses crossing the ice shelf from, like, Russia to Alaska and populating the, the new worlds in Canada and North America and dealing with colonists and so forth and all these big, huge, just uh, mammoth themes. And then, of course, Horse for Gloria, Prostitutes in the Tenderloin, Poor People, I mean, literally Poor People. Like the, I, I, I checked out his book, Poor People, and I started reading that. Uh, then his, uh, let's see, the first book that he attempted to write but was only the sixth, well, it ended up being the sixth one that he came out with was an Afghanistan picture show and uh, which is where he flew into Afghanistan with Islamic commandos. Yeah. Islamic commandos. Yeah. Yeah, you heard me. So when you look at the book that came out of it, you know, well, that one in particular isn't very long, but you've got these other books, like these like thousand-page books that he comes out with about, about like early settlers of Alaska and shit like that. And you're like, what the? F- how am I going to read this? And you just kind of sit there, you just kind of stare at it, <laughs> and it becomes kind of just as culturally significant, uh, and at, 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 at attempting to read it as it would be to actually read it because you probably wouldn't be able to retain uh, more than a couple pages just because of the sheer density of everything. So what I end up doing then is I fall back and I draw off of the people themselves. Like this guy is such a fascinating, like he, I think he's got a, a book of uh, memoirs as far as his train hopping journeys, which would be a fascinating read. Um, oh, but the reason I bring it up though is because I've, I, I've started to expand my, my morning route now. So it used to be about a five thousand step 
route that went down into the park along the creek side and then came back up through town. But I've expanded it and taken it further down Old Town and then up further down the main drag, cutting through then some residential neighborhoods and then popping out onto the trails alongside the creek. And so it's turning about an 8,000 step deal now, which suppose, eh, it says it's like a three and a half miles. I don't know, but uh, I'm feeling it a little, but what I'm doing is I'm building up my uh, regimen here because uh, Catalina's getting closer. So, uh, but now I'm just, uh, I need more stuff to absorb, more music to listen to, more podcasts. And so I found another, I just happened to stumble upon one uh saturday morning this uh there was some i i was i followed it okay all right say what you want okay it's some geeky ass shit but i follow the hashtag uh hashtag volman and uh because his is probably the only one that really is spelled like his name and uh one of the listings was a uh or one of the postings was about a new podcasting these two guys they're both like phd geeks and volman nerds we're full-on nerds but it's a good podcast if you're a fucking nerd and but i'm a nerd so i listen to it and but it's like two over two hours it's like two almost three almost three hours actually two and a half two two hours of 40 so two two forty seven and uh, but it just the concept is these two guys who uh, they geek it out. They geek it up pretty, pretty damn, pretty damn well. And uh, so, the first book, each each episode, and this was the first episode. The f- uh, each episode is based on one of his books, and they just discuss the book. Which, man, it's like you really gotta have a a temperament for this shit because I mean, there was times where he could lose me, and. But then I'd pick it back up a little because, but they really, boy, they go hard into the uh, the minutia of a lot of these stories. And but, but what was really uh, to me overwhelming or over overshadowing was just the kind of the mythology around the guy himself. So that to me again is always what tends to. Uh, draw you to books, right? I assume, and then whether or not you read them or not, because who would ever ever buy who would ever buy a book by an author you don't you've never heard of, right? Unless it was kind of intimated by somebody to loan you the book, like this guy. You know, you never heard of him, but what he did was he uh, lived on a in a nudist colony for uh, three months and then wrote about it. And you're like, oh shit! Well, I've never heard of this guy, but that sounds fairly interesting. So whether the book even is about that subject or not, you're like, what kind of fucking mental defect would do that? I want to write, I want to read something that somebody like a whack job like that would write. So this guy, Volman, is a perfect fit. And so, so I, so that's what I listened to for uh, this whole week. I expanded my route. And uh, indulge in some of that. I even have I I checked out um, his. I think it was just the first book he came out with, "You Bright and Risen Angels." And uh, I want to say it was his first published book. And that thing is dense and gnarly. And oh, matter of fact, I'll even tell you, Jesus, it's a okay in the jungles of South America on the ice fields of Alaska the plains of the Midwest and the streets of San Francisco a fearsome battle wages the insects are vying for world domination I've always said that anyway check my podcast I've talked about this a few times the inventors of electricity stand in evil opposition Bug a young man rebels against his own kind and joins forces with the insects oh shit see you can't let that happen the insects can't rise up 1.6 we're on the hook for uh, 1.6 million ants per human. About 800 pounds of insect per human. So here, okay, it goes on to say, Wayne, a thug, allies himself 
with the malevolent forces of electricity and vows to assassinate the praying mantis who tends bar and organ. A brusque La Passionaria with the sprightly name of Millie leads an intrepid band of revolutionaries. Okay. So there you have it. You Bright and Risen Angel is the work of an extraordinary imagination. In this freewheeling novel of epic proportions, William T. Vollman has crafted a biting, hilarious satire of history, technology, politics, and misguided love. What's it like to be inside this guy's head, right? And this is his first book. And uh, every time I every time I start it, I, it hurts my head like an ice cream headache. And it's like 640, 630-something eh, pages long. And... So, but I'm gonna trudge through this thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna get on my Wellington boots, my 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 high rise, my high top boots, and I'm gonna I'm gonna you know wade on in. But this guy, but what's ultimately to me more um, interesting though is the guy himself. You know, getting back to like Harry Nielsen, like his. His music is phenomenal, and he does the wackiest stuff. Like as I was watching this, he had one album, and of course, this is probably—I mean, for people that know him—is this is all going to sound a little redundant? But he did a whole—he did a whole album of just Randy Newman songs. Like, who would do that? Who would do that? Like, that's that's fascinating. Like, I like Randy Newman, but I like Randy Newman because he's Randy Newman. You know. I like Harry Nielsen because he's Harry Nielsen, but singing Randy Newman, that's brilliant. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's, a, it's, like a, it's almost like a mind fuck. But then he came out with the, uh, his, his flagship album, uh, Nielsen Schmilson. What a, what a great, great album that is. But, um, but again, okay, so you got like... Uh, Lime and the coconut, you drink them all together. Put the lime in the coconut. You got that one. You got, I can't live if living is without you. I didn't realize he even sang that. I didn't know that was him. And then uh, he's got, uh, you can climb a mountain. You can swim the sea. You can jump into the fire. But you'll never be free. No, that's I mean, all in one album, and then the initial, the first song it was a really great piano number. Like it sounded like something from definitely from the seventies, and it is. But uh, fucking great. But what what you like about Harry Nielsen is the guy, right? That's what I like. So. um that's what you like, or that's what you know, all right? Because he, he's—I mean—notoriety goes a long way. And one of my one of the cool sections of of uh, documentary was his relationship with um, John Lennon, and these guys had this what they called the lot. Well, in a period called the Lost Weekend, John Lennon was—it uh, was actually this. I didn't realize it was as long as it was, but it was like this 18-month stretch. And to go uh, to, you know, most, let me, I'll get to specifics, right? It, the infamous loss weekend, uh, well, the incident in question happened on March 13th of 73 when Lennon arrived in L.A., he looked up Nielsen, a prodigious drinker who also did cocaine. John loved Harry Pang related. This is May Pang, which was, uh, this was, May Pang was John and Yoko's assistant that Yoko recommended having a f an affair with because they weren't getting along. So she actually said, why don't you have an affair with May Pang? He's like, okay, so 18, so he spent 18 months, I guess, uh, in L.A., he produced a couple of albums while he was there. Um, he uh, did a lot of drinking. And uh, let me see. So, yeah. So, Lennon and, Yoko, Lennon and Yoko split up. And 
Ono knew that Lennon was attracted to their personal assistant May, Pang, and believed that Pang would treat John well. In an attempt to save their marriage, Ono proposed that Pang begin an affair with Lennon. Pang, an employee since 1970, had worked with Lennon that summer on Mind Games. It was with her permission, Pang told About.com. She wanted him to go out. They were having problems. He was ready to go out with somebody, whether it was me or anybody else. In October, Lennon and Pang went to Los Angeles to pr- promote Mind Games and decided to stay. But without Ono's restraint, Lennon began to drink heavily. So, um, goes on to say, uh, John was exercising all of his bad habits. Um, nothing was getting done. And then March 13th of 74... At the Troubadour, all the Beatles were great fans of, and friends of singer-songwriter Harry Nielsen. Uh, they, collaborate, they collaborated on songs and films since 1968. And then when Lennon arrived in L.A., he looked up Nielsen, and it was on. Um, John loved Harry. Pang related. And, and, um, Lennon revealed what sounds like a documentary. He loved his energy. He loved his writing. But he loved in Harry was the beauty of his friendship and relaxed personality. That's what he saw. Harry drank a lot. But Harry was the type of guy that if you go out drinking with him, he'd be sure at the end of the night that there would be a big brawl and that you were the one who's in trouble, even though he started it. Harry would keep feeding John drinks until it was too late. And that's what happened on March 13th at the Troubadour during a show by the Smothers Brothers. Lennon... Drunk on Brandy Alexander's disrupted the comedian's act with relentless heckling. In the biography Nielsen, the Smothers manager Ken Fritz said, I went over and asked Harry to try sh- to shut up Lennon. Harry said, I'm, I'm trying, don't blame me. When Lennon continued, I told him to keep quiet. He swung and hit me in the jaw. Lennon and, Neil- and Nielsen were hustled out of the troubadour, knocking over a few tables in the process. It was horrendous, Tom Smothers recalled and dangerously funny. They came in pretty ripped to see our show, and as Harry later explained to me, he told John, he needs some heckling to make this thing work. <laughs> he didn't think I had an act. Well, they started heckling, and it was some of the worst language I've ever heard. And they had a real buzz on. Cognac and toot, I guess. And it was a mess. So. But just stuff like that. Lennon and Nilsson, along with Ringo Starr and Keith Moon, moved into a Santa Monica beach house. My God, I mean, you're just asking for issues. You're just asking for insanity. That's just that's just straight up insanity. So, so my point was though that you you get behind the person, despite you know the greatness of the music. I mean, it can stand on its own for for sure. And uh, I totally agree with that too. But um, I don't know. There's something, there's something about the mystique, about the purveyor of the book, or the music, or the you know the the the, the ideal or the 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 idea, the the notion, you know, of the mystique. And uh, so, and that and and it was funny. That is. Like I said, the tr- that's the Troubadour. The Troubadour is right there on the Sunset Strip. You know, it's right on the same street as the Comedy Store and the Chateau Mar- Marmont and uh, the Roosevelt Hotel. I mean, that was that's 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 old dark Hollywood. There's crazy. That's where that's the street that Audrey and I went up and down when we went down to the Roosevelt last or this was a couple years ago now. Just the 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 Walk of Fame. All the stars are on there. The Chinese Man's Theater where Howard Hughes would debut. Hell's Angels and Richard Pryor would you know was literally running down the sidewalk on fire and just down the block um, Robin Williams was leaving John Belushi's hotel room at the Chateau Marmont right before Belushi overdosed on heroin and cocaine and uh, the same place that Robert De Niro kept the same hotel that Robert De Niro kept a room on on uh, retainer, 
so that whenever he was in town, I mean, he just had he just he had just had that kind of presence, and they wanted to be at that spot, the Chateau Marmont, where the same hotel that it's supposedly haunted, you know, the one where Helmut Newton, the great German fashion photographer, left the parking lot and ended up crashing into the side of the wall with in his in his uh, I think it was a convertible and just died right. That's it's just it's got just all the wreckage and all the fallout of the history of a town like something you'd read about in Day of the Locusts. You know, you go up a few blocks and you go to the house that uh, they found uh, the Black Dahlia in front of murdered, you know. I mean, just these notorious crimes, these notorious scenes and these situations. And Harry Nielsen and John Lennon getting thrown out of the Troubadour, which is where the the doors played before they got into the Whiskey A Go-Go you know, which was just a couple blocks down. And then the Whiskey A Go-Go was, of course, once the Doors became the house band there, that was where Motley Crue started out at the Whiskey A Go-Go. And then across the street from there, on the same stretch, is the, is the Viper Room, Johnny Depp's club, where, uh, what's his name, River Phoenix died on the front sidewalk of... Uh, I think that was Halloween as well. I mean, just... That's L.A. That's crazy, you know? And I'm headed down there, man. I'm heading down there, man. I've been working on my hiking, man. I've been hiking more, man. Because when I'm going down there, I'm going down there in less than five weeks. And it's on. Because we're going to... We're headed for... uh, We're going to be... We're going to be going late into Bakersfield. Crash the night Bakersfield. And then rise early in the morning, about 6 a.m. Take the... 950 ferry out of Long Beach and be on the island on the 24th of March and I will be ready it's going to be it's it's going to be a weird Mediterranean setting I'm, it's going to feel like uh, pulling up to the Cannes Film Festival by boat and I'm going to be wearing my tuxedo like a, like James Bond and I'm going to get out and I'm going to look like the fucking Renaissance man this you know, the most interesting man in the world, and I'm going to check into the hotel, and then I'm going to take all that shit off, and I'm going to get on my headgear, my headlamp, my fucking GoPro, and after dinner, I am going into the hills, going into the hills. It's on. I've been watching, uh, so today, had a little overcast day here on Sunday, uh, on the day of recording, and so I've been camped out in the uh, up here watching. Well, first I found this uh, brilliant. Um, well, it's a doc. It's a, it's on um, the Pacific Crest Trail by this guy Austin Cedar, spelled S E D E R, and uh, boy, that was really well done. Um, he did some really imaginative work on it. Some real, I mean, it's it's very well produced, not overly produced. Like it's, it's better than like what you would see if you were to look up, say, trail hiking, like what I'm doing now, looking at Catalina. I'm I'm scoping out the trail. I'm going looking at the Trans Catalina Trail, but I'm looking at videos of people doing the Trans Catalina Trail, and they're all homemade and kind of. Mm, you know, what you would, what you would expect from a YouTube kind of thing, but, um, but this one for the Pacific Trail, it's, uh, it's called, uh, let's see, what the hell is it called? It's called, something to do with walking, uh, art of walking, yeah, the art of walking, and, uh, and then uh, it's about an hour and a half. It's fucking really, really good because it it doesn't kind of sugarcoat it. It gets to uh, the heart of like the whole hiking community and the 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 pathology behind it. And I mean, it doesn't really get into the real the real bad stretches, but. Um, 
it kind of gives you the rhythms of what it would take. To, I mean, it's, it's 2,680 miles. I mean, that's an endeavor. Um, but this guy did it right. He, he did his, um, he, he, he forwarded his resupply kits to all the proper stations. And then as he went along, um, he did it. He, he just took the time, you could tell, to do some cutaway shots and some angled shots, some side shots. He must have had a drone, too, because there's some great overhead shots. And uh, it's a really, really good landscape shots that just, like, it shows, uh, of course, he, he went south and north. So he started in, he went through, uh, started in Mexico up through Julian in uh, North County, San Diego, and up across to Hatchpee, and then um, high, basically the high desert into Mount Whitney, which it's hard to believe that that is the highest point in the contiguous U.S. at, uh, at 20, oh, I don't know, was it 14,500? 508 feet or something like that. That's the highest that's higher than Pike's Peak, but here it is in California. But so make it that's your highest point. So, um, and then from there, you as you keep going north, you go through Bishop and then into uh, you start getting to our neck of the woods. You go through Lake Tahoe and uh, Yosemite, John Muir Trail, of course, and then. Uh, up through Bernie, I think, was it Bernie Falls? And yeah, and then into Bend, Oregon, and uh, just really took, I mean, dubbed in the music, um, talked about the trail angels, which are just people that kind of live along the trail that uh, feed hikers and let them stay in their yard or stay in their house sometimes or just take them out for, like, uh, lake excursions, you know, if they live on the lake and they got a boat and these guys, they, get, they, took, them, they took them out for the afternoon. And then, but the big, uh, the big highlights really are the town stops where they, when you hit a town and then they, because you're constantly, you burn so many calories that you get into town and you just start like you just eat and drink everything you get your hands on and then you know you have a good time and um, so so he really found a rhythm in telling that story and uh, so it really made it enticing and that's what kind of re-inspired me to start doing some more trans Catalina research because now I got to figure out well this guy was doing, eh, he said he was doing probably 20, 25 on average a day. One day he did a 24-hour stretch on the PCT. Uh, I think he was up in Oregon, was he Oregon at that point? And uh, he covered 78 miles in 24 hours. Like, that's, that's, that's pretty damn good. This guy was in shape, though. Uh, he was a good narrator. I mean, um, he held his own. He was entertaining enough. And, uh, but if you look at it in those terms and the amount of time covered and distance, the Trans-Catalina, uh, trail is only 38 and a half miles long. So I could break that up into sections. I could do like a half section one night or one day. I could wear, I could figure it out, make it up to, uh, Blackjack Point, which is up at the I think that's at the top or near the top, up near the uh, airport up top there, and then make it back down. Maybe in maybe in the course of a day, I'm breaking up into two two different excursions instead of one long stretch. Do like they did back in uh, Yosemite, back when the 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 dirt bags and the uh, stonemasons and pre pre dirt bag pre stonemason when uh, Royal Robbins and those guys. We're doing the face of El Capitan and and uh, Warren Harding, his his rival that was uh, took him like three months to do was it three yeah something like three months to do El Cap but he was kept going up and down up and down up and down but fuck it 
I mean, that's the first time you've ever done it, then so be it. It's the first time I'm going to be doing this trail, so I'm going to break it up maybe into two parts. So I'm going to enjoy myself and, uh, you know, just fucking suck the marrow out of life. Um, I'm going to enjoy some great food. I'm going to indulge. I'm going to, I'm going to even, I'm going to even indulge in some touristy behavior. Yeah, you heard me right. During the day, um, maybe rent a boat, take the boat out, maybe go do some snorkeling. And then at night, boom, I'm gone. I'm fucking after dinner, after wearing a tuxedo. I'm going to, I'm going to, it's going to be like one of those uh, breakaway tuxedos like the like the NBA guys wear that just you just pull you just tug on the front and it's just gone I'm out, I'm out the back door. So So we'll see but I got to build up a little more. Ugh, I'm doing ugh, 8000 steps in the morning which just doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like much. Uh but it, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. But uh you know it's uh it's, uh, eh, I got a little mileage on this body, but nevertheless, nevertheless, got to suck it up, man. Shit. Emma Gatewood was 67 when she did the, uh, Appalachian Trail. So, shit, man. Come on now. And, uh, all she took with her was a fucking shower curtain and some Vienna sausages. So, um... So getting getting kind of circling back around now. I'm gonna I'm gonna start to uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna stay with the uh, kind of nonlinear approach like they used in Reservoir Dogs and uh, go a little experimental today. And uh, I'm gonna dub in a clip now from uh, the other night when I took my lady out. We started talking about. Oh, just uh, everything under the sun. It was Thursday night. Was it Thursday night? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I just uh, just got done talking with uh, my youngest and uh, about her play cancellation. So this is kind of like, uh, for me, consider it like the beginning of, say, a Reservoir Dogs win or, or like a Robert Alton film where there's talking, there's people in the background and there's people talking over each other. This is uh, this is this is my my tribute, my homage, my love letter to LA theater and the personalities around it. So enjoy. Okay, so here's what's going on. now. <laughs> in regard to going out there, would you rat? Now I know I talked in the camera, but would you be interested in renting out a room out there? Yeah, you would. Yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be the big trailer or anything. Just one of the little tiny ones are cool. Yeah. Where it just has like the bed and a fan and a TV. Okay. Yeah. They call it a hotel, but it's not a hotel. Yeah, it's just a strip of rooms, right? Yeah. That's what I'm talking about, yeah. Yeah. Then you get. Then we'll we'll spend the day hiking, do a little hiking or something. I forgot. Sunday, I'm gonna be. I'm taking Sunday off. We're getting Ness's bikes out of the storage, and I'm getting mine, and we're gonna ride. I'll go with you every morning if I can ride a bike. Those bikes out there already. I'm telling you for my for our house. Oh, okay. I want to get that, and I'll go with you in the mornings. And you're gonna ride the bike. I'll ride the bike. I'll go with you at least. You'll be like, you'll be, you be able to get up, or should you just stay up all night? <laughs> so you get up early enough. <laughs> oh, you're the song. You got jokes. Huh? You got jokes. I got jokes. Well, they're not so. very funny, and you don't have an audience. So we'll yeah we'll ride bikes this weekend, and then we'll get uh, yeah we'll get some duct tape and a, and a big and a big dead fish that I can spank you with and some peanut butter. Nessa listens to these sometimes. Hi Ness. 
Not anymore. <laughs> no, but that was the. Uh, it didn't even. It did, I just. It just occurred to me, like, why don't I just get a, a little room out, like, instead of. I just want to go out. I want to be out and away. Get a break. Yeah, for sure. Like, I'm. I'm looking forward to be spending a lot of time out there this summer. I told you I'd go with you out there. But that will be in a tent. That would definitely be in a tent for sure. Oh, for the oh, got it. Yeah. Yeah. Is your tent? Um, I'm doing my walk. You know, I'm gonna do my walkabout. I'm gonna do my thing. I'm gonna. Okay, so I have a question. Isolate for three months. The tent that's out at Laguna right now and the tent that you have in our closet. They're, oh, they're the same. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. I do a stand-up tent. I like a big ass room tent. That would be cool. Yeah. Hey, sure. She's gonna get the garlic butter shrimp. And then a lot of uh, cheese on my beans. Extra cheese. Garlic What's that? Garlic shrimp. Yeah, and extra cheese on my beans. Okay. Uh, then I'm doing the shrimp stuff, Rihanna. Yeah, with the shrimp, it's stuffed with shrimp, that one. Okay. Yeah. But it has the shrimp in it. The shrimp rayano. Yeah, it's a, a shrimp. It's no, it's no bear, bear. However, however you okay. want to do it. It's with the shrimp. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it's amazing. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what we just ordered. I don't know either. It's all right. Whatever shows up, I'm sure it'll be all right. So that's the, that's the deal though, and then, but I'm I'm te I'm tenting it out there a lot, but I'm gonna do it in a mobile. Like I, you don't want to put up like a big yurt out there because that's a. I mean, you could do it for like a a week. You're gonna want to set up for a week at a time. Is that what you want to do? We could do. If that's the case. We could get a yurt. That'd be pretty bomb. But that's at work. So we got a place for it out um, there. Yeah, I know. Well, we don't have to get a big, humongous ones that look like living rooms, just a little tiny one. I would love to be able to stand up in whatever we sleep in. That would be cool. You want to stand up in whatever we sleep in? Yeah. I never see standing on the bed at home. <laughs> so, I, uh, so I call Audrey. Oh, yeah. And I, uh, I wanted to see, like, if she was all bummed out about the play cancellation, you know. And she's like, no, not really. It's kind of a win-win, really, because like, she goes, uh, all the practice is up till now because it's like, uh, like it's less than a month away. And she said like a lot of the practices that were going on were kind of like train wrecks. You know, like people wanted to know. Like there's only a couple people that really knew all their lines, you know, and most everybody else didn't. Which I don't know. I mean. Well, she might lie about that. Well, I'm not, that's not, not what I'm getting at. I'm saying, like, in a performance, like, I acted in a couple plays in college, and you're still, like, you're still, like, refining everything up until, like, the night before. Mm -hmm. So, but she was like, yeah, I don't know, I was kind of stressing out about having to, like, perform, and then the practices were just a train wreck, and I, I said, yeah, you know what? I go, I think maybe it would be more a, a more interesting performance if there was some kind of, like, kind of a meltdown situation where like somebody lost you know the thread or the narrative or didn't know their lines like I think that would be that would be more fascinating like to watch like a complete just meltdown just chaos occur like in real time and she's like no I don't think that would be good and I said but you know what would be really even better <laughs> is if you is if you wrote it that way is if you stage the production okay and this is like I don't know if this is an original idea. Maybe it exists already, but if you say you stage like a production of like a of a, uh, a famous play, like Streetcar Named Desire, right? Like a Tennessee Williams classic, right? Streetcar Named Desire. That's like that's like where Marlon, Marlon Brando got his star, you know, okay. theater and movies and stuff, you know. Okay. Tennessee Williams, he's a he, was, he you know he was a famous playwright, you know. Okay. And. Um, so he did, uh, I think he did Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and then he did uh, Streetcar Named Desire. But all these not supposed to be a good movie, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof? Well, they made movies out of all those plays, oh. yeah. And, um, but those are like the old standards, you know, everybody does this, some version of a Streetcar Named Desire. Like, you know, Simpsons even like kind of did a parody of it, like a musical, you know, of uh, Marge, Marge tried out for, and 
Anyway, so, but if you did a version of one of those plays, like Streetcar Named Desire, but you, but you only told the audience that's what they were planning on watching, but what it really was is it was rewritten entirely with a meltdown scene where uh, it was like a put on, like a like a like a like a, like a put on where like you like the real act, the real acting within the piece is to watch your your actors stage a meltdown, even though it's not really a meltdown. So the audience thinks they're watching Streetcar Named Desire, but what they think that is happening in one of the scenes is like one of the actors forgot their lines, and like they just have a complete nervous breakdown, <laughs> and, then, and then it, and then it caused some kind of chain reaction, right? But the whole thing is staged and it's part right. of the production. How brilliant would that be? She said no. She's like, no, nah, I don't think that, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> but, she doesn't want to see anybody hurt or get their feelings or anything like that, you know? No, but you know, this happened before, too. This happened uh, last year at the Greek, uh, had a play that she was, maybe it was right before the pandemic, she was going to be in a play, and then, they, and then they did the lockdown so they couldn't do it or something. So every time that she's getting ready... A little ready, bit sounds familiar. Yeah. So every time there's like a live production of some sort, like there's some something that happens. Like, so the teacher, the instructor that was directing the play as having some health issue or something. And I, yeah. uh, she said it wasn't serious, but uh, but they called a meeting today at 2 o'clock or something before school was out or, or right after school before practice. Oh, so you found out today? She found out. And she's like, oh, I kind of I kind of had this kind of, you know, this feeling like that was the case, right? And uh, even though the director said it was nothing serious, but I told her what she should have done is gone, like, like in that Tom Hanks movie about the, the, the captain of that ship that gets uh, <laughs> boarded by pirates, she should have just she should have just stood up in the meeting and gone, I'm the captain now. <laughs> and just take it over and just keep, That would have been funny. Keep moving. I know. She's like, no, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. She's fun to be around. What tripped me out was how much Chloe opened up the day she came over. I was bragging about her Tanessa. I was like, it was so cool. I go, I don't think she felt awkward or anything. I go, she totally slept by me in the bed. I go, she fell asleep, you know? I noticed though that she takes sleeping pills, you know, her little sleeping pills. I go, it was really good. Huh? She takes CBD, I don't know. That's what probably what it is. Well, they were white. I don't know, Crazy. maybe. But um, she slept pretty good, you know? But I told Nessa, I go, it was really nice. Her coming over, I go, I kind of felt like there was like, was that little like gap. Because I don't have that with Liam and I don't have it with Audrey, you know. But with Chloe, yeah, I always do. felt that. A gap? Oh, a gap? Oh, no. No. Oh, I, no, yeah, because, yeah. Chloe's not really around and d does as much stuff yeah. as the twins do. Well, she's usually at like Ryan's or she'll be I know, off. I'm just saying, yeah. yeah. So with her age and everything and... I don't know, I just told Nessa, I said it was really nice. She's like, that's so good. Well, she's also had the opportunity to like see, uh, well, you know, she wasn't, I'm sure it was probably, uh, there was probably moments when she was really young where um, she had to deal with some realities that maybe forced her to gr grow up a, a little more than she needed to. Uh, I couldn't say, I couldn't substantiate that. I think it's just the responsibility of Liam. Well, well, that too, too. I mean, she does, but she also like goes out of her way to do that too. Like she's really, even from school down at UCLA, she's uh, she chimes in a lot of her, as far as what uh, the twins are up, you know, like advice or just recommendations or well, particularly with school because she knows this. The teachers yeah. that are there already, but um, but she's uh, I think she's relaxed a little more since then because of being exposed to the uh, to a whole different life now too. She's been able to kind of open up in that regard, yeah. and then um, and just be in a. Uh, even though it's probably not an example of a healthy environment because it's just frat boy parties and you know dorm yeah, but dorm and dorm weird no well but 
it's reality. You know, it, because anytime you're stuck in a house, I don't care what house you're in, that is that is your virtual reality, is, is the roof that you're under, right? So that's your standard bearer for everything from then on. So you've got to find... All right, wow. Come back for your software, it's okay? All right, thank you. Still don't know what she said. I think she said I come back with silverware. Oh, okay. So yeah, to get out of it, to get out of that environment and get out of that little biosphere is huge too. So that, and the fact that I told her like I smoke weed all the time. <laughs> She's like, yeah, I figured that. Thank you. Oh, thank you. She goes, I figured that after I listened to that podcast that, that, that was titled The Time I Took Mushrooms. <laughs> Broke her in, yeah. That kid. Good for her, though. You're such a silly woman. Put the lime in the coconut. You drink them both together. Put the lime in the coconut and then you feel better. Put the lime in the coconut and call me in the morning. Oh, whoa, whoa, ding. I say, woo, There's nothing I can take. I say, ha, ha. Relieve this belly. I say, ah, no. I'll take it to y'all later. Arrivederci, baby.